Good evening, everyone. I want to welcome you back to Jesus on Prophecy. Tonight, our topic is hellfire. And this is another one of those topics where there is a lot of error that has come into the church in the understanding of hell and hellfire. And so we are going to see what the Bible says about that so that we can compare that to what the popular teaching of today is. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Loving Father, we want to thank You and praise You for life and life more abundant. And Lord, we are going to get deep into this topic of hell tonight. And so we need to lean on You. You tell us that it was the Holy Spirit that inspired the Bible. And so we need the Holy Spirit to interpret it for us. And we're going to claim the promise of Jesus because He said that if we come earnestly seeking the truth, the Holy Spirit will lead us into all truth. And so, Lord, we are going to claim that promise and we're going to ask You to do that very thing for us tonight. And we're going to ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start off tonight by asking you a question. Have you ever been to hell? You see, the reality is there is an actual place called hell. It's extremely hot. It has barren, jagged landscape. And you wouldn't want to spend the rest of your life there because it's a desolate place. But it is a place in the Cayman Islands and uh, it has black limestone formations there. It's located on the west bay, uh, the west end of the island, and it's about half the size of a football field. And they actually have viewing platforms there where you can look out over this area and take pictures of these uh, amazing geological formations. And uh, the interesting thing about it is it's made out of limestone, but it's black because the algae attacks the limestone and it gives it a sort of appearance of having been burnt or uh, having been scorched or destroyed in some way. And there are a lot of different explanations that people give of how this place became known as hell, but irregardless of... It, what most people say is, well, this must be what hell looks like. And so that's what they think is how it got its name. But irregardless of that, it has become a very big tourist attraction. And they even have a fire engine red post office where you can go and send postcards from hell to your friends and family. They have souvenir shops there where you can buy souvenirs from hell. But friends, that's not the hell that we're going to talk about tonight. We want to talk about what the Bible has to say about hell. Because there are a lot of questions that people have. Some say, is hell a spot in the center of the earth where there are millions of people that are burning today? And then that also brings up the question, how could a loving God burn people for millions and trillions of years? So we want to see what the Bible really says about hell. And along the way, we will discover 
that it's far more amazing than the place called hell in the Cayman Islands. And that's why, as we have gone through our series, we have adopted this theme that if it's in the Bible, I believe it. But if it's not in the Bible or it disagrees with the Bible, then it's not for me. We're going to throw it out. Because you see, there are many traditions, there are many teachings today about hell and there a lot of them are in direct contrast to what the plain Word of God says and about the judgments of God. And so we want to know what the Bible says, don't we? And so let's take a look at that. But you'll remember that last night we did a study on the millennium. And we saw that at the second coming of Jesus Christ, that the dead in Christ are going to be raised from the dead. Those who are alive in Christ are going to be transformed. They're going to be caught up together in the air, meet the Lord in the air, and He's going to take them to heaven for a thousand years. At the same time, at the second coming of Christ, the wicked living are going to be destroyed By the brightness of His coming, they will be left as refuse on the ground, and the wicked dead are going to remain in the grave for that thousand years. We also saw that during that thousand years, earth has been destroyed. It is desolate. It looks like a pre-creation, formless, void, deep. And we know that there are no living humans at that time on earth. The only ones here are Satan and his evil angels. And they will be on that desolate planet for that entire millennium. But then at the end of the thousand years, God in an amazing display of power and grace is going to move the very headquarters of the universe to the planet earth this earth that for the last 6,000 years has been in rebellion. And Revelation chapter 20 tells us that at that time, at the end of the millennium, that the city of God, the new Jerusalem, is going to come down out of heaven, is going to come back down to this earth. And the wicked dead are going to be resurrected and Satan is going to be released from his prison. Because now he has his old job back. He immediately goes out to the four corners of the earth to deceive people. And of course, they haven't changed. And so they fall right into line with him. And they give their allegiance to him. And they're going to come and try and take the city of God. But before that happens, there is also a judgment that God shows them their lives, shows them all the choices they made, all the opportunities that they had to surrender their hearts to Him and that they didn't do that. And there is going to be a point when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But that is going to be very short-lived and then the devil is going to rally everyone together and they are going to surround the city of God and they are going to try and take the city, try and take control of the universe And it says that God is going to destroy them. He is going to put them in a place that the Bible calls the lake of fire. 
Now, here is how it describes the destruction of those who are led by Satan and try to take God's city at the end of the millennium. Revelation chapter 20 verse 9 says, They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The Bible describes this as the second death. Let me show you that. Just a few verses before this one, in Revelation 20, verse 6, it says, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. So the question is, what does the Bible mean when it talks about this second death? Well, we might describe it this way. The first death is the death that we each die as the natural result of living in a sinful world. The wages of sin is death, and so each one of us dies. But we've already looked at this, and the Bible describes that death as a sleep-like state, right? And at the second coming of Christ, If you have given yourself to Him, if He is living and reigning in you, the power of God is is changing you, there's enough evidence to show in your life that you have surrendered to Him, then you will be resurrected from that sleep of death. But then the second death is an eternal death as the result of a personal rebellion against God. The second death results not simply because we were born in a sinful world, but because we have chosen the way of sin. This eternal death then occurs after the thousand years. So let's do a quick review at the end of that thousand years. God is going to raise the wicked from the dead... And along with Satan, they are going to attack the city of God. But the record of their lives is going to be shown to them in a panoramic view. They're going to be able to see everything that they did and the choices that they made. And they are going to recognize that God is fair, God is just, and they are going to say, yes, you were right. But then Satan convinces them that they can take the city of God. After all, there is more of them than there is of those who are in the city. And I just want to say I think that's really, really sad. Right? Because the Bible is clear there's no reason that anyone has to be lost. God has provided the way. And now... What God had freely offered them and they said no, now they're going to try and take by force. And the Bible says that fire comes down from God out of heaven and the lake of fire occurs and that's called the second death. That is hell fire that comes down out of heaven. And then out of the ashes of the old world, God is going to create a new heaven and a new earth. And I want you to listen to the description of that new world. Revelation 21 verse 1 says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. 
couple verses later it says, And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. God wants to deal with sin in a way that it will never rise up again. It will be gone forever. God wants to do away with suffering forever. He wants to do away with sin and pain and the physical affliction forever. But the question is, what about this lake of fire? What about hell? I have a question for you. I want you to put your thinking caps on because I think that really the majority of people who have a misunderstanding of hell it's just simply because they haven't thought it through and the question is how can there be an ever burning hell and at the same time God create a new earth how is that possible it's absolutely amazing to me to think that there are millions of Christians today who hold to the idea that God is going to burn people in hell forever and ever for millions and trillions of years. So let me ask you another question. Would you want to torment your worst enemy for trillions of years? That's pretty sadistic, isn't it? And yet that is the view of God that many people have today. And there are many evangelical leaders in the world who believe that. And yet at the same time, there are also many who are starting to come out, who are writing books and discovering that that view of hell is not an accurate view And they are starting to write books about that. Let me give you a couple examples. There's a guy by the name of Dr. John Stott. We talked about him already. He's a very well-respected and world-famous Anglican Bible scholar and expositor and author. And he has totally rejected that doctrine of an eternally burning hell. And we're going to talk about him later. There's also a guy by the name of Dr. Edward Fudge who is a very well-respected Bible scholar who completed a well-documented comprehensive study on the biblical truth on hell. And he wrote a book titled The Fire That Consumes. Very good book. You see, these scholars have realized that the idea of this ever-burning hell for trillions and trillions of years is really a pagan doctrine and not a biblical view. It is really blasphemy against a God of love. And so today, there are many Christians who really have some very honest questions. Those questions about hell. They want to know, where is hell? When is hell? How long is hell? And how can a loving God destroy? You know, I think those are some really good questions. And the Bible has the answers for those questions for us tonight. So let's start with the first question. Where is hell? I want you to open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. 
That's going to be page 1424 if you're using one of those Bibles on the table. Revelation 20. We already had this verse up on the screen, but I want to look at it again because I want to look at it a little closer. That's page 1424, Revelation chapter 20. And notice what it says in verse 9. It says, They... That's talking about those who were resurrected after the millennium that were dead during that thousand years. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Now, I don't know if you noticed it in that verse, but that verse actually shows us where hell is. Did you catch it? Because it says that they went up on the breadth of the earth, right? They went up on the surface of the earth. And hellfire came down and destroyed them. So where is hell? It's on the surface of the earth, right? Well, you might say to me, Well, Pastor, you told us don't build our Bible doctrine on one verse. And that's true. We don't want to do that. So let's look at some more. Notice what Proverbs 11.31 says. If the righteous, that's God's people, will be recompensed, that's rewarded, where? On the earth, how much more the ungodly and the sinner? What's this saying? It's saying that when Jesus Christ comes back to this earth the second time, He is bringing His reward with Him. Right? And the righteous are going to be rewarded with eternal life. He's going to raise them from the dead. He's going to transform those who are living. And they're going to be taken up into heaven with Him. And so if they receive their reward on the earth, then how much more are the wicked going to receive their reward on the earth? So where is hell? Hell is on the earth, right? Look at this one. Ezekiel 28, verse 18. This is talking about Satan. And it says, You defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities, by the iniquity of your trading. Therefore I brought fire from your midst. It devoured you, and I turned you to ashes where? On the earth. In the sight of all who saw you. If we miss this one, we've missed the boat, right? Because this one clearly shows us that Satan is going to be destroyed on the earth. And what does the Bible say? What does Revelation say? He's thrown into the lake of fire, right? And so where is the lake of fire? Upon the earth. Okay, so then the question is, when is hell? Now, we've already looked at this when we looked at after the millennium, the city of God comes down out of heaven, the dead are resurrected, and what do they do? They come up against the city of God, try to take it, but fire, hellfire, comes down out of heaven from God. So when is hell? At the end of the thousand years, right? Let's look at a few other verses. Notice Malachi chapter 4, verse 1. The Bible says, For behold, the day is coming. 
burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly, will be stubble. Here we see that in the days of Malachi, Malachi says the day is coming. Hell's not here yet, right? Hell's not burning yet. In the days of Malachi, he says it's still coming. He goes on to say, and the day, that's the day of hellfire, which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts. And so clearly he's saying that day is still coming. It's still in the future in his time, right? Now, I want you to notice we also have some information in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 7, in talking about cleansing this earth with fire. It says, But the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word are, what's the next word? Reserved for fire until when? The day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So here Peter tells us the day of hell fire is reserved. In other words, hell is not burning now. But it's reserved for a day to come. And when is that day going to be? When God pours out His final judgment upon all of the wicked. And when is that? After the thousand years when they try to take the city of God. And so that's when hell is. Hell is not burning now. So how long does hell last then? Because the popular teaching is that hellfire burns forever and ever. It's an eternal fire that never goes out, right? But what does the Bible say? The Bible makes it very clear that hellfire burns until it does its job. Notice in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29, it says, Our God is a what? Consuming fire. In other words... God is going to consume the wicked, right? I want you to think about this for a minute. When you take a log and you put it in the fire, does it burn forever and ever? No, it burns until it is consumed, right? It burns until it's all gone. And then if you don't put any more wood on the fire, what happens? The fire goes out. Notice what Malachi chapter 4 verse 3 says. You shall trample the wicked, for they shall be what? Ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. Here we see that hellfire is going to burn them up until they become ashes. And once you burn a log and it becomes ashes... The fire is done, right? The fire goes out. The wicked are going to be turned to ashes. They are not going to burn continually for millions and trillions of years. God is going to put a total end to sin and to sinners. So all of the heartache, all of the suffering, it's all going to be over. All of the pain, it's all going to be done. And when that happens, and when does that happen? When hellfire is done, right? When everything is burned up, the fire goes out. 
And then He's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. The Bible says that God is going to put an utter end to sin. So put your thinking cap on. We're reasonable people. We can think this through, right? If God is going to put an utter end to sin, then how could it be an utter end if it keeps on burning forever and ever and ever and ever? Right? God is going to bring it to an end. That's what the Bible says. So question, how can a loving God destroy those He loves? I think that's a great question. But John chapter 3, verse 16 tells us, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him would not burn in hell forever and ever and ever. Is that what it says? No, it says whoever believes in Him will not... What's the word? Perish. Right? God doesn't want anyone to perish. He sent His Son to pay our penalty for us at an infinite cost to Himself. He gave His only begotten Son because He didn't want anyone to perish. He wanted everyone to have everlasting life. But here's the thing. You can't force someone to love you back, right? God loves us. He's given us the opportunity to be with Him forever, but He's not going to make anyone. He's not going to force anyone or coerce anyone. Love can only be given and received if we have free will, if we have the choice to love Him back. And so a loving God doesn't bring unsaved humans, people, to heaven where there is unselfish love because they'll bring their selfishness with them and then the whole rebellion would start all over again. And if God was going to bring people to heaven who don't have unselfish love, then he's going to have to do some kind of cosmic brain surgery on them to get them right, right? But God doesn't do that. He gives them the freedom of choice. And therefore, he honors our choice. And so anyone who does not go to heaven is because of their own choice. They didn't want God. They rejected His love. They rejected His offer of salvation. They rejected His gift. And so they are not going to be there. They have turned their back on Him. They don't want His love. And in reality, they are clinging to their sin. And so the idea that God is going to punish people forever and ever and millions and trillions of years is not a biblical teaching. This theology has come from somewhere else. It is a pagan doctrine that has infiltrated into God's church. Remember, we talked about this. How does the devil deceive everyone in the last days? You take a little bit of error, you mix it with truth over thousands of years, and pretty soon it's being taught as the truth. And that's what we have today. That pagan doctrine is being taught in the churches today. And so let me show you what the early church thought about hell. Notice what it says in Psalm 37 verse 20. But the wicked shall burn in hell forever and ever. 
Is that what it says? No, it says, "...the wicked shall perish, and the enemies of the Lord, like the splendor of the meadows, shall vanish. Into smoke they shall vanish away." You see, the Bible is pretty clear, isn't it? Over and over again, we see these verses that are clearly showing us that hell is temporary. Hell is going to do its job. It's going to burn up sin and sinners. But when it's done, the hellfire is going to go out. Notice here what it says. What does the Bible mean when it uses the expression everlasting destruction or eternal fire? Because here's the problem that we have in our finite minds. We look at those words everlasting and eternal and we say, oh, that means forever, right? That means it's going to keep on burning forever and ever and ever. And uh, certainly, the Bible does not contradict itself. And so if that seems to contradict what the rest of the verses of the Bible are saying, we, we can't just throw those verses out or ignore them. We've got to examine them to see what they're really saying. And then we've got to recalibrate our mind to try and line it up with all of the other verses because once we get them all lined up, then and only then can we be pretty certain that we have the correct interpretation. So notice what Hebrews 9.12 says. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with His own blood, He entered the most holy place once and for all, having obtained what kind of redemption? Eternal redemption, right? That's what the verse says. Having obtained eternal redemption. So does that mean that Jesus Christ is going to be redeeming us, hanging on the cross for, for all of eternity? No. What is it saying then? It's saying that the sacrifice that He made on the cross, through that He redeemed us, and the consequence of that is eternal. There's no undoing it. There's no doing away with what He has done. It is an eternal redemption but not an eternal redeeming, right? Let's look at another one still in Hebrews chapter 6 this time. Verse 2, Of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of what? Of eternal judgment. Does that mean that God is going to be judging us for all of eternity? No, it means that there was a judgment, one judgment, and it has eternal consequences. Notice it doesn't say eternal judging. It says eternal judgment. And that judgment, there's no appeal. There's no undoing that judgment, right? It has eternal consequences. The results of redemption and of judgment will be everlasting. The results of the cross are everlasting. Likewise, when God destroys the wicked, it is going to be eternal destruction. It is going to be everlasting destruction. In other words, there's no coming back from it. Right? 
It has eternal consequences that last forever. We see that same understanding in the book of Jude. Jude only has one chapter. It's verse 7. It says, As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and having gone after strange flesh, are set forth as a what? As an example, suffering the vengeance of what? Of eternal fire. And so here Jude tells us that Sodom and Gomorrah is an example of hellfire. Because what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah? God poured fire from heaven down and destroyed everybody and the city, right? And it says that it was an eternal fire, right? So is is Sodom and Gomorrah still burning today? No, but yet it was an eternal fire, right? It's a fire that there's no coming back from. It's a fire that is going to consume. It's a fire that's going to destroy. A fire that's going to annihilate. And its its consequences are forever and ever. An eternal fire then is one whose effects or results are eternal. So you might say, well, what about everlasting punishment? Notice what it says in Matthew 25, 45, and 46. Then he will answer them saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into what? Everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. I want you to notice that the Bible does not say everlasting punishing. Right? But it says everlasting punishment. It's one punishment whose consequences are everlasting. And so when we start to rethink these verses that seem to be saying something else and we put them in the proper context, now all of a sudden all of our fence posts start lining up, don't they? All of a sudden all of the verses start saying the exact same thing. I want you to think about this for a minute. Imagine the popular view that God is going to burn the wicked in hell forever and ever and ever. And I want you to imagine that you have lived to the age of about, let's say, 90 years old. And then you die. And you go to hell. And a thousand years later, imagine God coming up to you and saying, I told you so. I told you so. You didn't listen to me. You're going to keep on burning. And then imagine a million years later. I told you so. A trillion years later. Can you wrap your mind around a God of love doing that? And yet that is the popular teaching of today. It it, it just amazes me that we are willing as Christians to say that God takes delight in destroying the wicked. That He is going to keep people burning for trillions and trillions of years when the Bible is very plain on this subject. 
The Bible says in Philippians 3.18 and 19 that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is everlasting burning. Is that what it says? No, it says their end is destruction. Right? The wicked are going to be destroyed. The Greek word for destruction is one of the strongest words in the entire Bible. It means to literally be consumed or totally destroyed. It's talking about complete and total annihilation. That's what it's talking about. Notice in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to what? Destruction. Right? The Bible is very clear that the wicked are not going to burn forever, but they are going to be destroyed. And so let's talk about the fate of the wicked. Let's look at a few more verses. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says, The wages of sin is everlasting burning in hell. Is that what it says? No, it says the wages of sin is death. The wicked will die. That was the first lie in the Garden of Eden, wasn't it? You will not surely die. But the Bible is very clear. You will die if you don't have Christ as your Savior. Let's keep going. Luke 13.3 says the wicked will perish. Malachi 4.1 says the wicked will be burned up. Psalm 37.20 says the wicked will be utterly consumed. Malachi 4.3 says the wicked will be turned to ashes. Obadiah verse 16 says the wicked will be as though they had never been. And Isaiah 47 verse 14 says that Satan is going to be totally destroyed. The Bible's pretty clear, isn't it? A loving God is making an appeal to us. I love you. I paid the penalty for you, but it's not automatic. You have to accept my payment for you. You have to ask me to come into your life because I'm not going to barge in. I stand at the door and knock, and I'm inviting you to have eternal life. No one has to perish. But how can God still, if He's a God of love, how can He destroy I want to show you that. Turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah 28. That's going to be page 814. Isaiah 28. And I want you to notice what it says in verse 21. Isaiah 28, verse 21. For the Lord will rise up as at Mount Perizim. He will be angry as in the valley of Gibeon that He may do His work, His awesome work, and bring to pass His act, His unusual act. There are some Bible translations that say His strange act. Think about that for a minute. What is that saying about God? It says that God is love... And it's a strange act, an unusual act, for God, the Creator, to destroy His creation. That's what it's saying. But God is also a righteous judge. 
And so he must judge sin and sinners. And if we don't accept the payment that he made for us, then it means we have to pay that penalty ourselves. And so he will destroy, but it's not that he enjoys it. It's not that he just rejoices that people are going to burn forever and ever. No, he's going to destroy them once and for all because he is a just judge and he has to deal with the sin problem. He has to do away with sin and sinners forever. And so think about this too. Jesus Christ is coming back to this earth and he is holy and righteous. And sin cannot survive in the presence of a holy and righteous God. And so if we have no righteousness of our own, the only thing we can do is be covered by the righteousness of Christ. But if we have that righteousness, then we can stand in the presence of a holy God. But if we don't, then we will be consumed. We will be destroyed. We will be as though we had never been. But what about this concept of body and soul, right? We've already talked about this. The popular teaching is that when you die, it's not really you that dies. It's the body. It returns to the dust of the earth. But then the soul continues on without the body. That's called anthropological dualism, right? And that's the popular teaching of today. But I want you to notice what Matthew chapter 10, verse 28 says. Jesus says, Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear Him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. What's Jesus saying here? He's simply saying, Don't worry about somebody killing you. That's the first death. That's the sleep of death which I can resurrect you from. You shouldn't worry about that. You should worry about the second death. You should worry about that death that there's no coming back from where both body and soul are destroyed. Right? That's what he's saying there. Now, I want you to consider this for a moment, this popular teaching of hellfire. And in this popular teaching of today, the wicked, according to this teaching, are tormented for all eternity while the devil stands by and watches, right? To make sure that they burn evenly. I'm assuming that's what that teaching is all about, right? But let's think about that seriously for a moment. We are all intelligent people. We are able to reason together. Think about this. This controversy between Christ and Satan has been going on for over 6,000 years. Do you think that after that long that Christ is going to give the devil exactly what he wants? What does he want? He wants to be in charge. He wants to be worshipped. Do you think God's going to give him a place where he can get exactly what he wants? No. I don't think so. I don't think that's a biblical teaching at all. And then think about this one. The popular teaching is also when you die, you go straight to heaven or hell, right? So imagine Cain, Adam and Eve's son, who killed his brother Abel. 
and he dies and goes to hell, a thousand years before Hitler, for one death, he's going to burn a thousand years longer than Hitler who's responsible for the death of millions. Do you think that's fair? You think that's just? You think that a God of love would do that? All right, let's try another one. How about the 22-year-old who goes out and celebrates his birthday, gets drunk, and gets in a car accident, kills himself, and kills someone else? And now he's going to burn in hell for millions and trillions and trillions of years for 22 years of indiscretion? Does that sound fair? Does that sound like something a God of love would do? Friends, this is a doctrine from hell, right? Those who teach this doctrine of demons are going to be held responsible for the thousands of souls that have been lost because they refuse to believe in a God who seems to be bankrupt of love, reason, and common decency. The devil has succeeded in leading God's people to believe and to teach this doctrine that paints God with the very attributes of Satan himself. It is a doctrine that the Scriptures do not support. We looked at this quote the other night, but I want to talk about it again. It's from Clark Pennock, a professor of theology at the McMaster Divinity School in Canada. He says, anthropological dualism, that's the idea that the soul can live without the body. He says, it has done such serious harm in weakening our blessed hope of Christ's appearing and distorting our understanding of the world to come. That's so true, isn't it? But he doesn't stop there. He keeps on going. He says, worst of all, It has given rise to the sadistic teaching that God makes the wicked suffer unending conscious torment in hell which has been such a burden to the Christian conscience and an unnecessary offense to many seekers. Notice he says there that this is a burden to the Christian conscience. Right? Let me tell you what happens to people when you believe that God is love and yet He's going to burn people for all of eternity. What happens is we can't bring those two thoughts together. And so there are a few things that happen to people. One thing might be that you decide, I can't make those two things work together and so I'm just going to tuck that in the back of my mind And I'm just going to trust that God knows what He's doing and He's going to work it all out and it's going to be good. That's one way of looking at it, right? But what happens when we do that? What we start to think is the only people that are going to go to hell are the really, really really, 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 really bad people, right? And so what happens? You go to a funeral and there's some scoundrel who 
hated everyone, had no nice thing to say, never did a good deed for anybody. But what happens? They preach him up into heaven, right? Because he hasn't killed millions of people. He hasn't raped or, or uh, you know, sodomy or anything like that. The only people that are going to go to hell are the really, really bad people. And so that's not him, right? And so what do we do? We start saying he must go to heaven, right? And then what happens? Then we get to the place where we get to universalism. Everybody's going to be saved, Right? Is that the kind of teaching that we have in the church today? Those are exactly the things that are going on. And then you have another problem. Another thing that comes from that teaching is now all of a sudden you start following God out of fear rather than out of love, right? Let me give you an example of that. Many years ago, there was a preacher by the name of Jonathan Edwards who preached a very famous sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And if you can get your hands on that sermon, read it. If you can hear it, it's amazing how he graphically explains the torture and the horror that people are going to go through as they burn forever and ever and ever, and then He gives an altar call. Right? Whoever doesn't want to be a part of that, come on up here and give your heart to God, right? And rather than serving God out of love, we serve God out of fear. And that's exactly what happens. And what did Clark Pinnock say? He said that it is a burden to the Christian conscience and it has caused many honest seekers to say, well, I can't love a God who's going to do that, right? Notice what John Stott said. He's the founder and president of the London Institute of Christianity. He says, as a committed evangelical, my question must be and is not what does my heart tell me, But what does God's Word say? And in order to answer this question, we need to survey the biblical material afresh and open our minds and not just our hearts to the possibility that Scripture points to annihilation. And that the doctrine of eternal conscious torment has to yield to the superior authority of Scripture. Isn't that powerful? He's saying, look, we can't go by what the common practice or teaching is today, even if it's in the church. We have got to yield our position to the superior authority of the Scriptures. So John Stott says that the doctrine of eternal conscious torment has to yield to the superior authority of Scripture. There is perhaps no stronger argument against eternal torment than the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross for you. Right? Romans chapter 6, verse 10 says that He died that death once and for all. And so if you believe that the consequence of sin is an everlasting, ever-burning hell, then Jesus didn't pay your penalty for you. 
because He's not there. Right? But what does Scripture say? Scripture says that He died for you once and for all. He paid your penalty for you. You know, the Bible says that we have to be baptized with water and fire. We go down into the watery grave and we're baptized in water, but we're also baptized with the Holy Spirit, which fire symbolizes in the Bible, right? But did you know that the earth must also be baptized with water and fire? It was baptized with water at the flood, and it's going to be baptized with fire at the end of the thousand years. The earth has to be cleansed too. Now, remember we talked about those fence posts? You've got to line them all up. You've got to get all of the Scripture saying the same thing. There are some Scriptures that seem to be saying something different than all of the verses that we've already looked at. So, what about the biblical expression, unquenchable fire? Let me show you a few verses here. Mark chapter 9, verse 43 and 44 says, If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall what? Shall never be quenched. An unquenchable fire is one that no human hand can put out. Let me show you that from Scripture. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 27 says, Then I will kindle a fire in its gates, and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem, and it shall not be quenched. Clearly, God says, I'm going to build a fire, and no one's going to put it out, right? That's what He's saying there. Jerusalem was burnt twice. When Nebuchadnezzar came, and when the Romans came in 70 A.D., And God says it was an unquenchable fire. So, is Jerusalem still burning today? No. And yet it was an unquenchable fire. Right? You see, the great goal of our loving God is to save men and women. But if we rebel against His salvation... An unquenchable fire is going to consume all sin and sinners in the universe. And what that's saying is that a fire that God starts, no one can put out. It's not going to go out until it accomplishes what it was designed to do. But once everything is burned up, the fire goes out, right? but it's still an unquenchable fire. Do you realize that even in this world today, there are unquenchable fires? My son's a firefighter. He knows this very well. There are some fires that you go to that are so hot and so powerful that they can't put them out. And what do the firefighters do? They just back off and they let it burn until it burns out. And then they go in and they just make sure that it's out and doesn't restart somewhere else, right? But an unquenchable fire 
is not one that burns forever. It's simply one that no fire department on this earth is going to be able to put out. So what about the biblical expression forever and ever? Revelation chapter 14 verse 10 says, He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone, and the smoke of their torment ascends how long? Forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. Revelation chapter 19 verse 3 says, Her smoke rises up forever and ever, right? So we have these Bible verses that seem to be saying that this is going to go on forever and ever and it's never going to go out, right? But is there anywhere in the Bible that can help us to reconcile these seemingly opposite ideas? Do we just throw out dozens of verses or do we investigate, do we look into them and do we examine them and try and put them into agreement with the rest? So, what does forever mean in the Bible? Forever in the Bible can be translated till the end of the age. Sometimes in the Bible, forever refers to a specific period of time. Let me show you. Exodus chapter 21, verse 6. Then his master shall bring him to the judges... He shall also bring him to the door or to the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him for how long? Forever. So here you have someone who is a slave, and they have decided that they want to remain a slave because this must be a really good master. He's got a good life. And so he wants to remain a slave forever. And so it says, bring him to a door, put a hole in his ear, put a ring in there, and that's a symbol that he's your slave forever. Right? But how long is forever? Does that mean that person is never going to die? Does that mean that if they do die and they go to heaven, that they're still going to be that person's slave forever and ever? No. What it's simply saying is that person is going to be your slave until they die. Right? It's going to be until they're in the grave. Let me show you another one. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 22. Hannah brings her son Samuel to the temple to give him to the Lord as a priest of God. And notice what she says. I will take him that he may appear before the Lord and remain there how long? Forever. That's in verse 22. Six verses later, she gives an explanation. She says, therefore, I also have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. So in this case, how long is forever? As long as he lives, right? How about this one? Forever can mean a definite period of time. Let me show you this one. Jonah. You know the story of Jonah, right? Swallowed by a big fish. Notice what Jonah says in chapter 2, verse 6. I went down to the moorings of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Now, how long was Jonah in the belly of the fish? Three days, right? Yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord. It probably felt like forever, right? But sometimes in the Bible, forever has a very specific period of time. 
The wicked are in the flames until the end of the age, until they are totally consumed, until they are burned up, until they are no longer living. And when Christ comes the second time, the wicked, the unbelievers who have been reserved for judgment are going to be destroyed. Now sometimes people say, but what about the parable of the rich man and Lazarus? First of all, we have to realize that this is a parable, right? And in this parable, Jesus tells this story of a rich man and a beggar by the name of Lazarus. And every day, Lazarus laid at the gate trying to get some food handouts from this rich man, but they both died. And then supposedly, the rich man goes to the place of torment, which we would assume is hell, and the uh, beggar, Lazarus, goes to heaven. But it doesn't call it heaven. It calls it Abraham's bosom. Now, here's the thing. If we're going to take that story literally, then we have some problems with the story, right? Because that means that everyone who dies and goes to heaven, goes to Abraham's bosom, he must have a pretty big bosom for everyone to fit, right? And so if we're going to take the story literally, we have really got some problems. Because here's the popular teaching. You die, and the body dies, but the soul lives on. And so in this story, the soul goes there. But what does it say? It talks about how he wants uh, Lazarus to go and dip his finger. He sees him. He has a body, right? And so that just does not fit with the popular teaching. So... If you are a Christian and you believe that this is literal, then you also have to believe that all of the people in heaven literally can see all the people in hell. Because in this parable, the only thing between them was this great chasm, it was called, something that's too wide to get over, something that's too deep to go through, And so here we have heaven and hell right next to each other. Now imagine if you were in heaven, but you had a family member that was in hell and you saw them for all of eternity in torture and in pain. Would that be heaven to you? Absolutely not, right? So we can't take this parable that Jesus gives literally. If you say that this is a living soul in hell and this rich man died and he has vacated his body, then he doesn't have hands and feet and eyes and a tongue and all of that. You see, what Jesus was doing here is that the Old Testament Jews believed that riches were a sign of God's favor. And that poverty was a sign of his displeasure. That's what the people of Jesus' day believed. And so Jesus is turning that thought around and he is showing them that God doesn't judge by the outward. God judges by our lives, how we live, right? And the writings of the Bible are sufficient to reveal our duty to our fellow man. That's what Jesus is bringing out in this parable. You were rich. You had a duty to help the poor. 
but you didn't do it, right? The parable provides the vehicle for making this teaching in a very startling way clear to the Pharisees and his audience. The Scripture says clearly that the wicked will be as though they had never been. They are going to be destroyed. They are going to be annihilated. And it's going to be an eternal destruction. But Jesus offers us abundant life, right? That's the point that He's making to them. Matthew chapter 13, verse 50 says, "...and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth." That's what hell is going to be. Don't get me wrong. Hell is going to be suffering. Hell is going to be pain. But the greatest part of the pain is going to be the recognition of what they lost. They're going to see the choices that they made and they're going to realize that they gave up eternal life. But Christ has made provision to save every human being. Christ walked through the fires of hell and experienced it so that you and I don't have to. But there wasn't any fire or smoke on Calvary that day. But Christ tasted the mental agony of every lost soul. As the guilt of sin was upon Him, He felt that on the cross. And that's why He cried out, My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? There on the cross, He went through the pain. He went through the suffering, the condemnation, the weeping, the gnashing of teeth that the soul that is separated from God is going to go through in that last judgment. And that's why it says in Ezekiel 18, verse 23, God says, Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God? God asks the question, do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked? And praise God, He doesn't leave us guessing. He answers that Himself. He continues on here, and not that He should turn from His ways and live. I don't have any joy in killing the wicked. I would desire that they would turn and live. Notice what He says. Here's His answer. For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live, right? He says, I have no pleasure. It is not part of the plan. And Jesus even said, hell wasn't made for man. It was made for the devil and his angels. And there's no reason why any man should perish. Jesus paid the price. We simply must invite Him into our heart, let Him sit on the throne of our heart, and transform our lives. And when the judgment goes on in heaven, there should be sufficient evidence to show that we've been transformed by the power of God. What are we doing? We're keeping all of the commandments of God, including the fourth commandment, which says to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. That means we don't arbitrarily pick another day and make that our corporate day of worship. If there is going to be evidence that we have truly surrendered to God, He says the Sabbath is a sign between you and me. It's a sign that we are loyal to Him. 
He has provided the way. He has given us the opportunity. I want to close tonight by sharing a story with you. There was a woman who walked into a store one Sunday morning to buy some things. And she saw some people sitting around a table, a round table like these. And one of the men that was sitting at the table saw her, got up and came over to her and said, Ma'am, I'm sorry, but we're closed today. I must have forgot to lock the door. And the woman says, Oh, I'm sorry. And she turns around to start walking away. And the man says to her, Hold on a second. He says, We're getting ready to start a Bible study. Would you like to be a part of it? And she looks at her watch and she says, yeah, okay, I got some time. And they were studying this exact topic that we're talking about tonight. And when they got almost done, the woman started crying. And the man said to her, oh ma'am, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to offend you. And it took her a moment to collect herself, but she finally said to him, oh no, you, you haven't hurt me today, you've helped me. She said, I need to tell you a story. She said, you see, I have a son and I raised him the best that I could. I tried to teach him about God, but he was very rebellious and he just kept going his own way. And he was always getting in trouble with the law. And just a couple of weeks ago, he was running from the law in a high-speed chase and he crashed and he died. And she said, but... I really struggled with that and I had a hard time. But then the next Sunday I went to church and some of the ladies came up to me and said, I'm so sorry that your son is in hell. We're praying for him. And the woman said, I was devastated. She said, I couldn't imagine him burning in hell for all of eternity. But thank you so much for sharing the truth with me. You have given me great hope. You see, friends, the devil wants to deceive God's people. He wants to lead as many people away from God, and so he paints him in a light where people can say, how can a loving God do that? And they reject God. A little bit of error in with truth over thousands of years, and pretty soon it's taught as the truth. You see, friends, the devil is deceiving the world. And the Bible says the whole world will wander after the beast. We've been talking about these deceptions. It's not just one, but it's a multifaceted, multi-layered deception that is going on. And there's still more that we need to talk about. And so I want to encourage you to keep coming because we want to know the truth. Because it's the truth that sets us free. Amen? And we want to make sure that we are not a part of the deception. And the best thing that we can do is to fit the description of God's last day church in Revelation 14, verse 12. They keep the commandments of God. 
The implication there is that they are sold out to God. They are doing everything that He has asked them to do. The record of their life reveals that they're totally committed to Him. Titus chapter 2 points out a people that are so committed to God that they're like Enoch. He comes to get them. And we want to be a part of that group, don't we? If that's the desire of your heart, then pray with me now. Father in heaven, Lord, you know every heart here. You know when we're giving you lip service, and you know when we're serious. And our actions reveal if we're serious or not. Anyone can say, I love God or I'm committed to Him, but do we do the things you've called us to do? Jesus said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and then you don't do the things that I say? Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commandments. And so, Lord, we need Your help. We have no righteousness of our own. We can't do the things You're asking without You. It's impossible. But with You, all things are possible. And so, Lord, we are praying and asking that You will give us the power. Because we see what the Apostle Paul says about Christians in the last days. He says they have a form of godliness, but deny its power. And so, Lord, we need the power in our lives to transform. We need You to help us to make the choices to come out of the apostate churches and to be a part of Your remnant church. And Lord, it's going to take some sacrifice. It's going to take a change in our lives. But we're praying and asking You to help us to do that. And we're asking in Jesus' name. Amen.